All right, thanks, Kylie. Uh, I don't know how to follow that. Uh, um, I just assure you that whatever happens from this point on will be a downer from that. Okay, so uh, this is this is the Bible. Uh, and if we take our faith journey seriously, at some point uh, we start to read the Bible, yes? And it may be somebody actually that we know who is a little further along in their faith journey tells us, why don't you should start reading the Bible with the words of Jesus. So you start in the Gospels and you read John, maybe, or you read Luke. And as you read those books, you find out that you like Jesus very much. And then you go back to your mentor or the person who's maybe discipling you, and then they say, well, you should read the whole story of God because you are part of the people of God. And so maybe you start with Genesis, and then you read Genesis, and you're like, ooh. Right? And you come to the flood. Uh, maybe this is a story that you know pretty well because you watched a movie uh, with Russell Crowe in it. It was terrible. Maybe you watched that movie. Or maybe you learned about it because you grew up in church and you learned about it in Sunday school. And you know this story goes somewhat like this. Uh, people are wicked. And God regrets making humans. And so he drowns them all. Except for a dubious character named Noah and his family. And then some animals. Uh, and then, of course, if you know the story a little bit, you know that there's an agreement, like a covenant agreement covenant, like a kind of like a marriage covenant agreement almost, like between Noah and God. He makes an agreement to never flood the earth again, and the rainbow uh, is a seal to that promise. So you know this story, and it feels pretty safe if you read it in a children's Bible. And you see the animals all docilely walking up to the ark, you know, um, animals that would really be eating one another are like kind of going up very calmly and peacefully, but if you're like me, maybe you have some really important nagging questions, difficult ones. So God is going to drown everyone? So how can I follow this God? And if I follow this God, am I condoning divine violence? What do we do with those questions? I mean, at this point in the first service, I said, we're done, and I left. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Um, here's, the, here's the tricky thing about Genesis. Uh, if Genesis is a story about restoration, uh, about a compassionate God restoring Eden to the world, and as we've been saying, Genesis is the story where uh, God begins the, he can't wait to begin the re-Edening project. Right after Adam and Eve stand before God in their fig leaves, sewn up, um, God is actually beginning the restoration project then. We we look at this flood and we ask, how on earth is this restoration? Isn't it just genocide? So, uh, if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. This is the question that we want to ask. We want to ask, how is the flood restoration? Uh, and we want to talk about a, a bunch of different things, but let's read the passage together. Um, verse, cha verse 5, let's start. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was de deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, 
and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long. A cubit is like about 18 inches. 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. This is massive, okay? Uh, Verse 16, make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower Middle, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Uh, Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. So there are three things that I'd like for us to look at this morning. I'm going to have a ton of time um, for this, this episode or this story, uh, but we'll look at three things. The first thing that we'll look at is we'll look at the mystery of judgment. The second thing is the omnimerciful God, and finally, um, the burden of Noah. And then as we uh, have done each week, I'll offer kind of a re-eatening practice. And so let's start with the mystery of judgment. Uh, the chapter starts off with a bang. Uh, verse 5, um, that God, the Lord, sees how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. I mean, and it should remind us of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says, God saw all uh, that he had made, and it was very good, Genesis 1.31. But here, mirroring Genesis 1, the Lord sees all that he has made, but now it's not good. Rather, the Lord sees how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. He had seen that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Then he sees how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And please note how how complete the corruption is. Every inclination, only evil all the time. And then we read that the covenant, or the corruption, I'm sorry, results in an earth that is full of violence. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we read that the earth is full of good things. 
But Genesis 6 tells us that the earth is full of violence, and it's full of violence, as the text says, because of humans. And then as a result, the divine judgment comes that we're going to talk about here in a moment. I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, 613. And you read these verses and you say, how do these verses square with the God who is love? How do we read these verses? How do we understand them? Understanding that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How do we square these two things together? You know, like people have been asking this question for a really long time. For many, many centuries, people have wrestled with this question, which led, has led some people to actually, some theologians to actually say, you don't need the Old Testament anymore. Let's just put it away. Uh, even some megachurch pastors declare that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because maybe violence presents an almost insurmountable obstacle to faith. I mean, even worse, some have read the divine violence and have concluded that that divine violence must be imitated and enacted by humans and gives right to Christian leaders to act in domineering, abusive, violent ways for their perceived Righteous cause. I mean, this is the reason behind the Crusades in a nutshell. I mean, all of us would agree that violence is problematic, yes? All of us would agree that. Uh, human violence, in particular, is an unsolvable problem for people like Nietzsche, who recognize that um, looking at human violence and scoring that with a narrative of essential human goodness, you can't do that, really. And here's the other thing. We're just philosophers. Let's not even talk about philosophy. Let's just talk about ourselves for a moment. Don't we live in an unprecedentedly peaceful time? You know, we actually do. I mean, I know that's hard to believe because you could open up your phone and you could find news about Israel-Palestine, which grieves us. You could find news about the incursion of the Russians in Ukraine. You could find all sorts of violence if you open up your phone. But here's the interesting thing about that. If you look at any of the data, uh, what you'll find and learn is that we're more peaceful than we've ever been. You, you see, uh, for most of our world's history, conflict, battle, war was the normal part of life. Uh, you expected your sons to go to war. If you were a couple and you got married, you expected that at some point your husband would have to go to war. I, I, I read this in a Harvard anthropologist account, account of human history. Uh, he tells us that between 1500 and 1800, European polities were at war during 80 to 90% of all years. So think about that for a moment. For 300 years, you were basically at war. Uh, England was alone at war about a half of the time from 1100 to 1900. So for 800 years, England was at war 50% of the time. As I said before, the way the world was is different than the way the world is now. Um, as I said before, couples knew that their husbands would probably have to go to war. Families knew that their sons would have to be drafted into conflict and may well lose their lives. But here's Genesis 6 telling us it's even worse back when Noah lived. Every inclination of every heart was only evil all the time. 
And the reason why I mention this is because in order for us to understand divine violence, in order for us to understand the mystery of judgment, we have to understand the context. We have to understand the context of every inclination, only evil all the time, with a world that was full of violence. It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because we don't live in 1800 England. We don't live during the time of Noah. But we do have some, some modern guides. Uh, there's a professor at Yale named Miroslav Volf. And uh, Wolf is from um, what was then known as Yugoslavia. He lived during the ethnic cleansings of his home country. Um, we don't have Yugoslavia anymore. That's been split apart into a bunch of different countries. But for Wolf, the violence was vivid. It was devastating. It was affecting his own country people. And the interesting thing about Wolf is it led him to conclude that divine judgment was not just necessary, it was essential. In fact, uh, Wolf wrote a very famous uh, thesis on how we ought to, as Christians, be nonviolent. But for him, nonviolence was predicated upon divine judgment. You had to have it. Uh, here, here's what he writes uh, My thesis, listen to his words, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. I mean, what hope could there be for, for Vol's fellow countrymen and women to whom this was happening. I mean, how could a person experiencing what I just read respond nonviolently as Wolf commends all of us to do? How could these people not perpetuate the cycle of violence by responding in kind? For that matter, how could the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who embraced nonviolent protests, how could he do that? How could he embrace nonviolence as a fundamental posture in the civil rights movement, how could he say, hate cannot drive out hate, only love could do that? How could King say that? Well, King could only say that because he knew that we needed divine vengeance. He could only say that knowing that, in his words, when slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like grass and leave them withering like the green herb. In other words, King knew there must be judgment because somehow the violence must stop. And the violence doesn't stop by piling on more violence on top of it. It stops by a king who makes all things right. You see, King... Um, he says that love drives out hate. And if you think that when King says love drives out hate, that he's just talking about mere ethics, you haven't read enough King. King believed in God. And he believed in a judge. And he understood that there was a judge who would make all things right. He was a God of love. And he would provide the animating love by which we could drive out hate. And, and he would be a judge. And Wolf understood this too, by the way. Wolf understood that there must be a judge to right all wrongs. Otherwise, 
as Wolf says very poetically and devastatingly, he says, violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Let me say that again. Without a judge who wields the sword, violence thrives. You see, I'm actually proposing that Genesis 6 is good news because it shows a God who is willing to wield the sword. And not only that, it also shows a God who's merciful. So here's why I say merciful. Please stay with me on this. I know this is really tricky. Okay, we're on tricky ground together, okay? But, but please stay with me. There's a God, there's a judge who is willing to wield the sword, but that judge is actually merciful. And why do I say that? Like, what emotion do you normally associate with judgment? Just think about that for a moment. If you think about a judge, and you picture a judge's face, and you think, okay, the judge is about to deliver his judgment, um, what, what do you normally, what emotion do you see? I don't know about you, but I see anger. I think about anger. But it's very important to notice that in Genesis 6, that's not what's happening here. God is grieved. You see, if like you read Genesis 6 and you're disgusted, and you read Genesis 6 and you recoil at the extinguishing of humankind, I want to tell you, you're in good company because God does too. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. This is what Genesis 6 tells us. His heart was deeply troubled. He is in deep, searing pain. And, and this word deeply troubled is the same word used to describe the pain of the woman and the man in the garden. It's the same word used to describe the pain that parents feel. In fact, one commentator puts it this way, the image of God in the flood story is perhaps best described as a grieving and pained parent. Now, this is the pain of relationship. Imagine the pain that it causes you to do something that you know will be ultimately difficult and painful for your friends or your siblings or your children, but you know that will result in their good. You know how painful that is. This is the kind of pain that God is experiencing. You know, but, but, but I say merciful not just because he's grieving, I also say mercy because he actually shows mercy too. Because you see that uh, at the end, there's a brief glimmer of hope, as my wife puts it in her commentary, a hint that the judgment will not be complete. It's here in this verse, which might be the most important verse in this whole chapter. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Here's why that's important. Mercy still persists in judgment. That's the definition of mercy, finding favor. This favor is divine grace in the face of judgment, and Noah has found it because God has given it to him. Uh, I read this, this book on, on, on divine violence called Flood and Fury by a Scholar, and, and, uh, and I really liked that book because the, the scholar was conversant with like, the rabbinic literature and what, what he, he, he talks about in this book is he says that the rabbis who are so familiar with the Old Testament 
when they saw the mercy that God gave to Noah, they were like, oh yeah, that's so in character with God through the entire Old Testament. They actually had a mathematical formula for it. They thought that mercy was so completely out of balance with judgment, with anger, with the hard edges of what we might perceive as a righteous judge, that they called him, uh, they would call him, or they would even say that he's omnimerciful. So we often talk about God being omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We often talk about God being omniscient. He's all-knowing. But I think the rabbis would say, he's not just all-powerful. He's not just all-knowing. He's not just omnipotent. He's not just omniscient. He's omnimerciful, too. Because here's the interesting thing about the Old Testament. There's only one person recorded in the Old Testament who forgives. Does anyone know who it is? It's God. Only one. So the rabbis understood God to be patient and forgiving. And God is so merciful to Noah that he actually demonstrated his favor toward Noah by promising even before the floodwaters come, even before Noah has built the boat, I am going to establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. He is demonstrating his commitment to Noah even in the face of the floodwaters coming. You see, God's starting again. Uh, the floodwaters, they, they called to mind Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovered over the creational waters. So what's God doing? Well, he's bringing back the creational waters, the flood to re-eden creation, to bring it back to the good uh, and... And to bring it back to, as what one scholar puts it, like the state of useful formlessness, so he can, he, can, he can build it back up again. But notice God's not starting all the way over again because he's actually saving humanity and even saving the animals. Which leads us to the final point, the burden of Noah. So the mystery of judgment, the omnimerciful God, and the burden of Noah I mean, if you're familiar with the story of Noah, uh, then you know, um, as the late Tim Keller points out, that Noah didn't just take animals and his family on the ark. He took something else. According to Keller, he took his sin nature. So because later what we read in, 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 the, in the account of Noah in, in Genesis 9, we read that, that Noah gets drunk. He's naked. He's lying in a tent. One of the first things that Noah does when they land on solid ground is he's like, I'm going to make a vineyard, and I'm going to get trashed. <laughs> and so he drinks some wine, he becomes drunk, and lays uncovered inside his tent. And, um, and this is what he does. Uh, and, and I think that the writer of Genesis, what's happening with Genesis is that, is that God is communicating to us that even all the way back then there was grace. Because like Noah's described as righteous. I mean, he's hardly virtuous. Uh, Noah is described as blameless among all the people. And what's that about? I believe that's about his faith. It's about his faith in Yahweh. It's about his faith in Yahweh demonstrating his faith through obedience by building an enormous boat. I mean, this boat is massive. It takes a really long time. You're not building it for weeks. Or, or months. You're building it for years. And so he's building and he's building and he's building without any idea whether the creational floodwaters will come 
or not. In other words, whereas Adam did not follow through with the command to not eat from the garden, Noah demonstrated his faith by following through by building an ark. Noah was not perfect. Noah needed mercy and grace. What made Noah righteous was his faith in Yahweh. So all the way back to Noah and the ark, there's salvation by grace even here. And this means something very, very important about the fate of humankind. You see, Here's the thing. If you do any, like, uh, you could do this probably online. You could see how big the actual boat is, how big the ark is, right? It's huge. It's enormous, right? Uh, Some people estimate that it took him like 75 years to build the boat. And this matters because both the apostle Peter and the writer of the book of Hebrews understood that Noah's ark building was actually testimony, So Hebrews 11.7 tells us that Noah condemned the world, which could suggest that he proclaimed God's judgment against his neighbors. He warned them. 2 Peter 2.5 actually calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Uh, and, And whether that's through the testimony of his life or the building of the ark, he preached. And this matters. This is important. This is of enormous importance because it means that there was room on the ark not just for Noah's family, but for other humans too. Like, what if the ark was meant to take so long so that others would hear and heed the message of repentance? What if the ark took so long because God was patient? In fact, patience is how... uh, Peter talks quite a bit about the patience of God. Uh, In 1 Peter 3.20, he says that God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. He was patient while the ark was being built. And I don't think the patience is because he was like, no, this is taking a very long time. Very, very long time. When are you going to be finished with this thing? No, no, Peter says it was patience for another reason. Uh, It's patience because of mercy. Do you see the only other place that patience is mentioned The other place that patience is mentioned in Peter's writing is actually about mercy. So I'm going to read this verse. And as I read this verse, I want want to invite you to just close your eyes for a moment and imagine that this verse is about Noah and the the humans that were living at Noah's time. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with all of humankind, even in Genesis 6, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance repentance. And my wife's commentary puts it this way, since the Bible teaches us that God responds to those who turn to him, we can assume that if anyone had called out to him in true repentance, he would have heeded their cries. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. There was room on that ark. There was room on that ark. Why do you think it was so big? There was room on that ark. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, there's room on that ark? 
there is room on the ark. Here's the interesting thing, you know, Peter, um, who we've been mentioning, actually makes a direct connection between the floodwaters in Noah's time to baptism. Peter actually says that baptism is kind of like us passing through the floodwaters, but being saved and being raised from the water as sort of a foretaste of the resurrection we will experience at the end of time. Peter, in other words, says, we need an ark. You and I, we need arks. And Peter goes on to say, guess who your ark is? Your ark is Jesus. There is room on the ark. If you are sitting here today and you have not yet given your yes to Jesus, there is room on the ark. We'd love to have you. We would love to have you. I'm going to pray about that here in a moment, but here's the other thing that I want to say. Um, ark building is actually the re-edening practice I want to invite you into, into this morning. Ark building. So Noah's life work was an ark. He built and he built and he built without knowing whether or not the waters would come. And my question to you this morning is, what's your ark? What are you building? What are you building with your life? If your life is testimony, as Noah's life was testimony, what are you building? You see, if you've been told by people that you're different because you seem peaceful, guess what? That's arc building. If you've resisted being pulled into the kind of contentious, fractious debate around the dinner table during the holidays, you're building an arc. Um, if you have forgiven someone radically for when they've done harm to you, you're building an arc. I mean, if you have prayed for someone to be healed or someone to be delivered into freedom, you're building an ark. If you have shown agape love to others when they expected condemnation and judgment, you're building an ark. If you have been to others as Jesus has been to you and me, as he has been forgiving and loving and accepting, you are building an ark. Please, please know that people are watching. They know, please know that people are watching what you do, how you pray, how you talk, how you speak. Everything that you do in your life is testimony. Let's take a moment and pray. Would you just bow your heads with me and pray? I just want to invite you to consider that your life is art building. And when I ask you to consider your actions, that they might be testimony. Come speak to us, Holy Spirit, come.
And if you're here this morning and you are, are I've never said yes to Jesus, um, and you're just like, I think today is the day. I, I'm just going to pray a prayer and invite you to pray with me. Jesus, uh, I can't save myself. I need a boat. And so I, I come to you, I give you my life, I get on that boat, take me where you will take me. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, um, I'm just going to say this one last thing here for a moment, um, and, then, and then we'll be done. Um, this, may be, uh, this may be different. This message about Noah may be different than what you may have heard growing up. Uh, perhaps maybe in the church environment that you grew up in, um, you heard a different narrative about God and his anger. Uh, and you experience people in the life of the church who are animated by that kind of anger and harshness and judgment. And I just want to say um, that it's, you know, like we as pastors, I mean, like we sort of do the best that we can. Um, but sometimes we teach and we do things uh, that, uh, that are hurtful and harmful. And, uh, and if that has happened to you in the life of the church, from whether you've been in church from, from when you were a kid or even, even just like recently, I'm so sorry. Um, and, I, and, I, and I have to believe that healing actually can come from the one who makes all things right. And so I just, would you bow your heads for a moment? And I just want to pray. If you have been hurt, by uh, the church and hurt by the rhetoric from the church. I'm so sorry, but I also just pray, come Holy Spirit and send your healing. Uh, Church hurt has a way to keep us in bondage. I pray for freedom now. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Fill us with freedom and help us to know that you are an omni-merciful God. Of course, we would love to pray for you. We have prayer teams over here in that corner that would love to pray for you um, for anything emotional, physical, or spiritual. But like, could we all stand as we close? Um, I just want to remind you, too, that we do have a newcomer's gathering over here that we'd love to see you at. But Lord, would you heal our hurts? Would you fill us with your spirit? And would you make our lives a testimony to you and your mercy? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're so glad to see you go out and be the church.